And Adonijah sacrificed sheep and oxen and fatlings by the stone of Zoloth, which is beside Enrogel. And he invited all his brothers, the king's sons, and all the men of Judah, the king's servants. But he did not invite Nathan the prophet, Benaniah, the mighty men, and Solomon his brother. Then Nathan spoke to Bathsheba, the mother of Solomon, saying, Have you not heard that Adonijah the son of Haggith has, made, has become king, and David our Lord does not know it? So now come, please let me give you counsel and save your life in the life of your son Solomon. Go at once to King David and say to him, Have you not, my lord, O king, sworn to your maidservant, saying, Surely Solomon, your son, shall be king after me, and he shall sit on my throne? Why then has Adonijah become king? Behold, while you are still there speaking with the king, I will come in after you and confirm your words. And I'll pray. God, I thank you again for your word, and we just um, are grateful, God, that we have this privilege to gather together in freedom and to worship you and to have our hearts, our thoughts directed to you. And we pray, God, that we would hear your voice and we respond in loving faith, dependence, and obedience to you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, I wasn't here last Sunday. I appreciate John filling in for me. Um, Patsy and I um, were up in Pennsylvania for my niece's wedding, also Autumn Schaefer's sister, and it was a grand time. Beautiful day, beautiful wedding. Um, after the service was over, the father of the groom, he was talking to me, and he said, boy, I was really concerned because and, and of some things that I was saying while I was talking to this young couple. And um, he said, I really like what you had to say. But he says, a year and a half ago, when, my, when his daughter got married, he says, man, the, the pastor, he just, he got really dark. And he was just going on and on, just this dark stuff. And it was so bad. He says, the bride was crying. <laughs> and he says, and I'm sitting there going, stop. And there are two other men that were that standing there, and they were both at that wedding. And they go, yeah, it was awful. It was just terrible. And he goes, I really thought you were going down the same path. Glad you didn't. Um, and the reason he was concerned is because at, at one point in my remarks to them, I said, for a marriage to be good, um, one of the two of you has to die. And for it to be a great marriage, you both need to die. And you know what I'm meaning is that you have to die to self. You got two selfish people, you're going to have a bad marriage. You have to, one person at least has to die to self. And if both die to self, great marriage. Well, this passage here in 1 Kings, it starts out, as you recall, David is reluctant to give up the throne. And so he's um, really working here to prove that he still has what it takes to maintain the throne. And when the sad thing is, David never had what it, was, what it takes to maintain the throne. He became king because of the grace of God and for no other reason. Not because God saw a competent man, but God saw a humble man who would be dependent upon him. And that's what qualified David to rule. And now Adonijah is seeking to take the throne. It's not his to take the throne belongs to Solomon. David has made that clear, but Adonijah is the older brother, and he wants the throne for himself. So he is exalting himself to be king. 
And we saw last time how that self-exaltation is really satanic. It is the disposition, the mindset of Satan himself who said, I will. And that is now Adonijah. So the dad is reluctant to give up the throne, and Adonijah is wanting, conspiring to take the throne. So really the whole chapter is about the throne. And so now we come to this part where I jumped in, and we saw last time how Adonijah, he had no restraints. His father had never disciplined him. Extremely handsome man. He's born after Absalom. So he had every reason to think that the throne belonged to him, and he's just completely conceited, full of himself, and it's a sad situation. He's conspired with Joab and with Abathar, the two principal powers in the nation, and they're behind him, and so he thinks he can't lose. But when he calls together his coronation party, he's very selective about who can join his party. And he purposely excludes Solomon, Nathan the prophet, Benaniah, who was in charge of, of David's personal guard, um, and, and the mighty men who were with David. They were intentionally, purposely excluded. And the implication is they're going to die. These men are marked for execution. So in verse um, 8 and in verse 10, where these men are listed, the significance of that is that every man listed in those two verses is marked for death. This has never happened in Israel's history. It was very common in the pagan nations around them. But there have never been a time yet, there have only been two kings, where the, where the incoming king will kill anybody that he feels is a threat to him personally. Hasn't happened. And in fact, it won't happen in Israel until after the northern tribes of Israel are taken, um, or, or just not be quite before that, but they're getting toward the end of the northern tribes. Judah is, is around, and Ahab is king, and Ahab and Jezebel give their daughter Athaliah in marriage to the son of Jehoshaphat, Jehoram, and the first thing Jehoram does is murder all of his brothers under the influence of Athaliah. And that's a long time after Adonijah and Solomon. Tragic situation. Had to have broken David's heart once again to have this kind of violence in his own home. And so then it says in verse 9 that Adonijah sacrificed sheep and oxen and fatlings by the stone of Zoloth. This was just... Um, Feigned religion. It is, just, it, it is just a show of religiosity where he's trying to, who do, you, who do you sacrifice sheep to? God. And God is nowhere near what this man is doing. But he's going through the motions, doing what he thinks he needs to do. He's got the priest that's backing him up, but God is nowhere near what's going on here. It is totally selfish ambition, pure and simple. He is cloaking his satanic ambition with religious formality. Isn't it interesting that one of the first qualifications of an elder is that he not be self-willed? Religious men, Christian men, can be very self-willed. This was Adonijah, a self-willed man who calls on God but God is nowhere near his activity. 
So Nathan realizes what's going on, and he goes to Bathsheba, and he says, listen to what I'm telling you, because I'm trying to save your life and the life of your son. Adonijah has taken the throne. David doesn't know what's going on, so this is what I want you to do. I want you to go into the king and ask him, has he changed his mind? And so Bathsheba goes in, and we pick it up in verse 15. Bathsheba went into the king in the bedroom, and now the king was very old, and Abishag the Shunammite was ministering to the king. Then Bathsheba bowed and prostrated herself before the king, and the king said, What do you wish? And she said to him, My lord, you swore to your maidservant, my lord, your God, saying, Surely your, your son Solomon will be king after me, and he shall sit on my throne. And now, behold, Adonijah is king. And now, my lord, the king, you do not know it. And he has sacrificed oxen and fatling and sheep in abundance. And he has invited all the sons of the king and Abathar the priest and Joab the commander of the army. But he has not invited Solomon your servant. For as you know, for, and as for you now, my lord the king, the eyes of all Israel are on you to tell them who will sit on the throne of my lord the king after him. Otherwise it will come about as soon as my lord the king sleeps with his, his fathers that I and my son Solomon will be considered offenders. Meaning we're going to be killed. Now, it's interesting, to me at least, Bathsheba is going, I know you didn't change your mind. She never suggests, did you change your will? Have you changed your mind from Solomon to be king to Adonijah being king? She never suggested it. What she says is, you don't know what's going on, and you need to do something. <laughs> Typical passive husband. And she's right. Now, Nathan's not going to take that route. Nathan's going to take the route of maybe the king has changed his mind. And so it says in verse 22, And behold, while she was still speaking with the king, Nathan the prophet came in. And they told the king, saying, Here is Nathan the prophet. And when he came in before the king, he prostrated himself before the king with his face to the ground. Then Nathan said, May said, My lord the king, you have, have you said, Adonijah shall be king after me, and he shall sit on my throne? Have you changed your will? For he has gone down today and sacrificed oxen and fatling and sheep in abundance, and has invited all the king's sons and the, and the commanders of the army, and Abathar the priest, and behold, they are eating and drinking before him, and they say, Long live king Adonijah. But me, even me, your servant, and Zanok the priest, and Benaniah the son of Jehoda, and your servant Solomon, he is not invited. Has this thing been done by my lord the king? And, ha and have you not shown to your servants who should sit on the throne of my lord the king after him? So again, he's saying, did you change course? Have you changed your will? And David gets the picture that right under his nose, another conspiracy has been taking place. And if he doesn't act soon, Solomon's going to be murdered. Bathsheba will be murdered. Nathan, Benaniah, the mighty men, all these good people are going to lose their lives. Now, I don't want to make too much. I, it's not my, um, my inclination to spiritualize the text at all. But God has given us these Old Testament um, stories so that we can learn from them. And I, 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 it's always on my heart and mind what a teacher um, used to tell us in college, every New Testament truth has an Old Testament illustration. And so 
That's not spiritualizing the text, but sometimes you just go, this is a pretty good illustration of a New Testament truth. And one thing that I see already in this passage is that when David became king, there was nobody excluded from that coronation. When, Solomon, when Saul became king, no one was excluded. And when Solomon becomes king, he will exclude no one from his coronation. But when Adonijah tries to take the throne, there are specific people who are uninvited. When Jesus ascended into heaven and took his place at the right hand of the Father, there is no one who is just automatically excluded. In fact, the scripture says that he gave his life for his enemies. That means he doesn't want anybody to not be at his coronation party. If anybody is not there, it's not because he doesn't want them there. It's because they don't want him to be king. That is the only reason that people would not be at Christ's coronation. Not because he doesn't choose it, but because those individuals do not want him to reign over them. It's as simple as that. His heart, as the reigning king, is for all to be part of his kingdom. And so the theology that says that he doesn't want some, he only invites some, but doesn't invite all, I think is, is terrible. And there are those that embrace that theology that say, well, he's not, not inviting the uninvited. He just only invites the invited. And I'm going, that is a distinction without a difference. If you're not on the wedding list, you didn't get invited. You were rejected. And that's, and that's just a wedding. But it's as simple as that. If you didn't get invited, then you were, you were rejected. Now, with a wedding, you don't have to take it personally because there's only so many they can invite. But in God's kingdom, all are invited. All are invited. He died for all. He gave himself for all. And he doesn't wish for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. He is a welcoming king. We're going to see when Solomon finally takes the throne, he doesn't even turn against these men. They wanted to kill him, and yet he does nothing against them. In the next chapter, the conspiracy is going to come back up again, and then he's going to act. Has to. But they had every opportunity to embrace him as king. And the only reason that, they, that Joab and Adonijah are going to lose their lives in the next chapter is because they refuse to embrace him as king. But they could have, and they were welcome to. So David rallies himself, verse 28, the king, king David answered and said, call Bathsheba to me, and she came and stood in the king's presence. In verse 29, the king vowed and said, As the Lord lives and has redeemed my life from all distress, surely as I vowed to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, saying, Your son Solomon shall be king after me and shall sit on my throne in my place, I will indeed do this day. Then Bathsheba bowed with her face to the ground and prostrated herself before the king and said, May my lord King David live forever. 
Then King David said, Call to me Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, Benaniah the son of Jehoiada. And they came into the king's presence. And the king said to them, Take with you the servants of the, your Lord, and have my son Solomon ride on my own mule, and bring him down to Gion, and let Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet anoint him there as king over Israel, and blow the trumpet and say, Long live King Solomon. Then you shall come up after him, and he shall come and sit on my throne and be king in my place, for I have appointed him to be ruler over Israel and Judah. And Benaniah, the son of Jehoiada, answered the king and said, Amen. Thus may the Lord, the God of my lord, the king, say, As the Lord has been with my lord, the king, so may he be with Solomon and make his throne greater than the throne of my lord, King David. So Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, Benaniah the son of Jehoiada, the Cherethites, the Pelethites, they went down and they had Solomon ride on King David's mule and they brought him to Gion. Zadok the priest then took the horn of oil and, and from the tent and anointed Solomon. Then they blew the trumpet and all the people said, Long live King Solomon. And all the people went up after him and the people were playing on flutes and rejoicing with great joy so that the earth shook at their noise. Well, that obviously does not escape the notice of Adonijah and company. Now Adonijah and all the guests who heard it were, who were with him heard it as they finished eating. And when Joab heard the sound of the trumpet being the commander of the army, he said, why is the city making such an uproar? And while he was still speaking, behold, Jonathan, the son of Abathar, the priest came. Then Adonijah said, come in, for you are a valiant man and bring good news. And Jonathan answered and said to Adonijah, no, not good news. Our Lord King David has made Solomon king. The king has sent also sent with him Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, Benaniah the son of Jehoiada, the Cherethites, the Pelethites, and they have made him ride on the king's mule. And Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet have anointed him king in Gion, and they have come up from there rejoicing so that the city is in uproar. This is the noise which you have heard. Besides, Solomon has even taken his seat on the throne of the kingdom. And moreover, the king's servants came to bless our Lord King David, saying, May your God make the name of Solomon better than your name, and his throne greater than your throne. And the king bowed himself on the bed. The king has also said thus, said thus, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who has granted one to sit on my throne today while my eyes see it. And I love verse 39, 49. And all the guests of Adonijah, Adonijah were terrified. And they arose and each went on his way. Talk about a turn of tables. They were just having parties. Man, woohoo, Adonijah's king. And then the news comes, Adonijah, you're not king. <laughs> it's Solomon. Oh my, we're in deep trouble. And they ran like rats off a sinking ship. They were scared to death. And Adonijah, see, they're afraid. they're afraid the tables are turned. What they wanted to do to Solomon is now going to happen to them. They do not understand Solomon. They do not understand the heart of God. Adonijah was afraid of Solomon, and he arose, and he went and took hold of the horns of the altar. Now, if I could um, draw this, and I can't draw... I could do PowerPoint, but then many of you would have heart attacks. <laughs> so you just have to envision this with me. The altar was, was the place you went to offer your sacrifices. It was just a, a, a square box, 
And you would go there with an animal in tow, and the priest would come out, and you would slice the throat of the animal and throw the animal up on the altar, and it would be burned. So this is the, this is the point. It was a very graphic illustration that the wages of sin is death. That when you sin, you deserve to die. And by placing your hands on the head of the animal that's about to die, you are saying that I'm identifying with this animal, and this animal is dying, as it were, as a substitute for me. So it was a powerful illustration. Can you imagine doing that with your dad as a little boy? And you take the best animal you've got, put a halter around it, and you lead it up to this altar, and you're standing there and slice its throat, throw it up on the, on the thing and burn it. And you're going, Dad, what was that about? And Dad has a beautiful opportunity to teach his children. This is what our sin deserves. This is what will come upon us unless God provides a substitute for, for us. And God has done that in His Son. And we, we know in the future He would do that, speaking in the Old Testament. So that when Adonijah goes there, and this box, this square box, by the way, had, had horns fashioned on the four corners, animal horns, like an ox horn. And that was for a purpose. The box itself, the altar, was where you went to acknowledge your sin. And if you weren't prepared to acknowledge your sin, you didn't go there. If you didn't believe that your sin deserved death, then why go there? So the act of going there was an act of admission that I deserve to die for what I have done. Adonijah is saying that by going to the altar. Now the horns on the corner, the horns of an animal depict its power, its authority. This is why in the book of Daniel, the ten horns represent ten kings. Horns represent power. And so the horns on the altar represent the power of God. To do what? Two things. The power of God to condemn sin. And also the power of God to forgive sin. All power belongs to God. And so when Adonijah goes to this altar and grabs hold of those horns... It's a way of just graphically saying, I know I deserve to die for what I have done. And I am putting myself at the mercy of God. Sounds good, doesn't it? Verse 51. Now it was told Solomon, saying, Behold, Adonijah is afraid of King Solomon. For behold, he has taken hold of the horns of the altar, saying, Let King Solomon swear to me today that he will not put his servant to death with the sword. And Solomon said, If he will be a worthy man, not one of his hairs will fall to the ground. But if wickedness is found in him, he will die. So King Solomon sent, and they brought him down from the altar. And he came and prostrated himself before the king. And Solomon said to him, Go to your house. I'm not going to kill you. Now, prostrating yourself before a man is to put yourself in the most vulnerable position that you can be in. If you're on your back, you can still fight. But if you're on your stomach, you are defenseless. And that's what Adonijah has done. He has made himself completely vulnerable, completely defenseless before the king. It's another graphic way of saying that you are king and I am totally submissive to you. 
I am totally surrendered to you. So his first thing that he did says, I deserve to die and I put myself at the mercy of God. Second act is I am totally surrendered, totally submissive to you. But Solomon is not so sure. And that's why it says, if he be found a worthy man, he will live. If not, he will die. Was Adonijah genuine or conniving in his repentance? Is he motivated by self-preservation or genuine conviction over his sin? Sometimes it's hard to know. In places where the church is heavily persecuted, and certainly in the early church this happened, that there would be somebody who, as as a believer, turned in his fellow believers. And then later came under conviction and repented and came back to his fellow believers and said, please forgive me. And they really had to struggle with whether or not it was genuine. Maybe he's going to do it again. I think it's noteworthy that Adonijah never verbally acknowledged what he had done. If he believed... From the beginning, if he believed that what he was doing in trying to take the throne was the right thing, then he had no reason to repent. And he should have been willing to accept the consequences of his actions. Right? If he was taking the throne because he believed this was what God had for him, and now he could die, he should have been prepared for that before he ever tried to take the throne and willing to accept the consequences. I came across a blog just this week about a guy named Henry Von Tesco. Probably not saying his name correctly. Um, High-ranking German officer who is one of the guys that was uh, most actively plotting the assassination of Hitler. He saw the atrocities committed by the Nazi regime and he became a die-hard opponent of Adolf Hitler. He devoted the last few years of the war to the goal of killing the leader of his country. In one instance, he put a a, a bomb aboard a plane that had 23 people on it plus Hitler. And he was hoping that the bomb would explode and bring the whole plane down. The bomb didn't explode. He was a leading figure in the assassination attempt on Hitler on July 20th, 1944. The resistance planted a bomb in a place where Hitler and other army leaders were meeting. And this time the bomb did go off. Four Nazis were killed. Hitler survived. Many of the men who worked with the, many men worked with the resistance. With this assassination attempt, the Nazi regime would soon determine who they were. Hitler was enraged and took revenge. Those found to have played any part were tortured and executed. Over 2,000 would experience that fate, including men like German theologian Diedrich Bonhoeffer. That man, when he realized that he was going to be exposed... He said to a friend of his, one of the others that was part of the resistance, 
A man's moral worth is established only at the point where he is ready to give his life in defense of his convictions. A man's moral worth is established only at the point where he is ready to give his life in defense of his convictions. So that's why I say if Adonijah truly believed that he was doing the right thing, then he has no reason to repent. No reason to say, I am a sinner who deserves to die. He should have been prepared to face the consequences of his actions. If he was doing the right thing, if he believed that doing the right thing, he was doing the right thing, then his repentance was either cowardice or a lie. And it was merely an attempt to preserve his life by any means necessary. On the contrary, if he knew in his heart that, he was, that what he was doing was wrong and he did it anyway, then the sudden repentance had to be questioned as insincere. If the repentance was genuine, then why not confess his sin specifically and openly? I'll paraphrase from a quote by Oswald Chambers. He says, the man who has by the Holy Spirit been convicted of his sin does not care what anyone else thinks about what he has done. He only cares about what God thinks. That's where David was at when God convicted him over his sin with Bathsheba. Ever been convicted of your sin? Chambers says it's a very rare thing. We feel remorse, we feel regret, we feel shame, embarrassment. But when conviction takes place, it doesn't matter what anybody else thinks. All that matters is what God thinks. When I was in college, I came under conviction. You remember them, and I can remember more, many occasions. Not many, but there have, been, there have been a number in my life where I, it was brutal. It is a hard thing to come under true conviction. God just doesn't let you escape. You know exactly what you've done. It's not just a vague sense of condemnation. You know exactly what you've done. We had to make a, a chart, a creative chart of the book of Daniel, Daniel's visions. I'm not a creative person, so it's near miracle just to even have to produce any kind of creativity. And so I'm moving along with this very major class project in the, in the class on Daniel and um, drawing my pictures and pretty happy about you know, how it's turning out. But I came to one point and I just, like writer's block, I could not for the life of me think how to depict this one part of Daniel's prophecy. I don't even remember which part it was. But then I remembered my roommate's a senior and he's already had this class. And that assignment is tucked away in his filing cabinet right here in the room. And I resisted for as long as I could. And then one day when he wasn't in the room, I snuck over there and opened that filing cabinet drawer and found Daniel, pulled out the chart. Oh, that really helps. Put it back in. 
And I had no peace. God so convicted me. Now, at the time that I was in Bible college, boy, they made it clear. We are preparing men and women for ministry. We expect more of you because the Holy Spirit lives in you. And if you are not morally fit to be in the ministry, we will kick you out. And I'm thinking, well, I'm not morally fit. And I just couldn't live with myself. A couple weeks went by. And I finally just said, God, if I have to get kicked out, I'd rather be kicked out and be right with you than stay here and live in the darkness. So I went to the dean of men. And I was just, I knew the axe was going to fall. And they're going to kick me out of school because I cheated. I said, this is what I've done. And he said, well, Charlie, did you put his work on your paper? No. His work just kind of broke open the block, writer's block. And I, oh, now I know what I can do. So you didn't put his work on your paper? No. Said, well, then you didn't cheat. But for what it's worth, I'm the dean. And I'm telling you, I forgive you. It's okay. And I knew God lifted it. I was obedient to respond to the conviction that God brought. It doesn't always turn out well. But this is the point. I don't believe Adonijah was convicted by the Holy Spirit by what happened. He's afraid of losing his life. But he is not under the conviction of God. I believe that because in the next chapter he's trying to take the throne again. Why would Solomon suspect that his brother's repentance was not genuine but in fact self-preserving? I wonder if it's because of verse 51. Let King Solomon swear to me today that he will not put his servant to death with the sword. As I read that, that is not the statement of a broken man. As director of his hill, there have been a few times when I've had to have students in the office and confront them over their sin. Sometimes it doesn't go very well. Goodness. I've had people just practically ready to come across the desk and hit me. Just mad. Stupid rules. Stupid place. Stupid director. Mad, fighting mad, spitting mad. What can you do with a person like that? Nothing. But I'll never forget one day I called a guy in. I don't even remember what he did, but it was big. And I called him into my office, and he sits down, and I start to talk, and he says, excuse me. He says, there's really nothing you need to say. What I've done is an offense that deserves to be sent home. I've already called my parents. I've told them what I've done. They've purchased me an airline ticket. My bags are packed. And I'll be leaving today. I hope someday you can find it in your heart to forgive me. Now, I can work with that. See, that's conviction. Conviction. 
There's no excuse being made. There's not saying, well, you ought to change your rules. This wouldn't have happened if it had. No, it's not about the roommate. It's not about the rules. It's not about a weakness. I have sinned. He didn't even ask for anything. He just said, I'm sorry. I hope someday you can forgive me. What a beautiful thing to see God at work. He stayed at Bible school. Solomon hears his brother say, let the king swear to me. That is a man who has not died. And as a man who's still bargaining for his life. It's been said that the, maybe the strongest desire, the strongest um, passion, motivation in any person's life is the motivation to live. We've all heard that if you trap an animal by its leg, it'll chew its leg off to get out of the trap. Self-preservation. I remember hearing in seminary a professor say that dominant passion in each of us was not in Adam, was not in Adam before he sinned. It is a consequence of sin, self-preservation. When I look at Jesus, there was no sin in Jesus. And I neither do I see a man who is dominated and driven by the passion to preserve himself. Self-preservation was not the dominant passion in Jesus if it was in him at all. Forty days without eating and prepared to die before he turned a rock into bread. Wow. Went to the cross not my will, but thine be done. We live because Jesus died. If self-preservation had been Jesus' main motivation, the preserving of life, he would have never died. Most Christian theologians, when they write on ethics, they'll tell you that the highest value is the preservation of life. I don't believe that. The highest value is not the preservation of life. It is the will of God. Even should we die. That is the highest value. I used to think the highest value for Jesus was maintaining an unbroken relationship with the Father. That would have been number two. The highest value was obedience to his Father, the will of God. Solomon is not seeing this in his brother. But at this point, it seems to be in Solomon. We don't know what happened in Solomon's relationship with Joab and Abathar and, and the rest of his brothers. Isn't that an interesting thing? I, I want to find out about that someday. Okay, Solomon, after you became king, did you guys still have Thanksgivings together? Because you know, you, all your brothers were ready to see you die. All of them. Wow. 
How does that look after you became king? God doesn't speak to it. But we know this. Solomon's decision to not kill them suggests that he was open to them and wanted a relationship with them. I think about Joseph, who was in the same position. Brothers who wanted to kill him. But Joseph forgave them from the heart and wanted a relationship with them. But it takes two to make a relationship. And even though Joseph wanted it, and I believe Solomon wanted it, that restored relationship depends on the brothers. I believe the same thing in relationship with God. God wants a restored relationship with all of humanity. But it takes two. Do we want what God wants? Are we willing to allow the conviction that God brings to us, bring us to true, genuine repentance and turning to Him in faith? In Romans 2, 4, Do you not think, or do you think lightly of the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? Solomon is showing nothing but kindness to these men. And as far as Joab, Abathar, and Adonijah are concerned, it did not lead them to repentance. When I survey this chapter, it occurs to me that it starts with a man who is trying to prove himself still being fit to be king. And then it goes to a man who is exalting himself to being king. And then at the end, he's seeking to preserve himself from dying. So, proving self, exalting self, and preserving self. The New Testament says, do not walk according to the flesh or you will die. Romans 8. But what does it mean to walk according to the flesh? What does it look like? It simply means to walk, to live from self. That's all that it means to walk according to the flesh. It's not that there's those big gross sins. It's just it's me. I am the explanation for my life. I am living from me. When you look at my life, you see Charlie, and that's it. I am living from self. That is a life according to the flesh. And in particular, I can know because we're also, we have such capacity for self-deception. I don't want to admit that I could be living according to the flesh. And I think God, this is one of the reasons God gives us chapters like this. So that we can look at what the flesh looks like. Am I seeking to prove myself? That is not Jesus. Am I exalting myself? That is not Jesus. Am I seeking to preserve myself, my reputation, my life, my job, my, my whatever? That is not Jesus. Jesus never acted from self or for himself. He didn't come to prove himself, but for the Father to be glorified. He didn't exalt himself, but he humbled himself. He didn't seek to preserve himself. He gave himself for us. His highest motivation, as I said, was the Father's will. Solomon, on the other hand, 
What a contrast to David and Adonijah in chapter 1. Is he proving himself? Nope. Is he exalting himself? Nope. Seeking to save his life? The one guy who should have gone to David and said, David, have you changed your will? Should have been Solomon. Right? Bathsheba goes into the room. Nathan goes in the room, but David, Solomon was the number one guy on Adonijah's hit list, and he doesn't go to his dad. I'm impressed by that. So I think that in this first chapter, Solomon is a picture of the spirit-controlled life. He's not proving himself. He's not exalting himself. He's not even preserving himself. He is totally trusting in the Lord. David was reluctant to give up the throne. Adonijah wanted to take the throne, both of them. It's my right. It's my right to be king. And Solomon was willing to wait on the one who sits on the throne in heaven to become king. With all three, it's a throne issue. And it always is. It always is. Who is going to be in control? Who is going to die? And in the marriage, we don't want to be the one that dies first. Let's just die at the same time. That would be nice. And we have an incredible way of resurrecting ourselves after we've died, don't we? But it never looks pretty. It's like that nun they just dug up after four years. Read that story? Unbelievable. Missouri, they dug up a nun after four years and they go, look at that. Nothing's happened. And I'm going, you need to show a close up. I can even tell from a distance she doesn't look so good. <laughs> when driven by self, we will murder anybody in our path. That was Adonijah. When self is on the throne and you get in my way, better watch out. Better watch out. But when God's on the throne, we've already died to self. When driven by self, we will murder anyone who gets in our way. Do anything to stay alive. All because we're unwilling to die and to let Jesus reign. So I appreciate this first chapter. It's ugly, but in the midst of the ugliness, you've got Solomon, who's not ugly. Beautiful life of the Lord shining through Solomon in the midst of self all around him. It's possible in Christ to die to self and for Christ to live, and for our lives to be a beautiful exception to everything that's going on around us. Amen? I'll close us in prayer. Lord Jesus, I know it is your longing that we die to self, recognize that we've been crucified with Christ, that we have been raised with him to newness of life. 
and that you would be free, God, to live this life in our flesh. That it would be Christ who lives and lives in us. And I thank you, God, for the beauty that you bring from death. That as we die to self, not crucifying ourselves, God, that's only something you can do. But reckoning on what you have done and giving you, Lord, that rightful place in our full surrender. Thank you, God, for the beauty that you bring. As the psalmist says, that beauty comes from ashes. You are the God who raises the dead and brings into being that which does not exist. I thank you, God, for the example of Solomon at this early point in his life. But more so, God, we thank you for Jesus who lived this life that you have called us to. And thank you, God, that you can live in us that very same life. In Jesus' name, amen.